Welcome to We're Not Finished, a podcast presented by the studios of Key West. I'm Gwen Filosa. I'm a reporter at the Miami Herald. The studios is a leading art institution in South Florida. It's located downtown at 533 Eaton Street. For a list of events and more programming like this, go to tskw.org. Lace Larrabee, thanks for joining me. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. You are a stand-up comic. I find you so hilarious. You have a, a podcast called Cheaties with Catherine Blanford, who I have interviewed before. So I feel like we're all friends because I'm... Yes. Uh, yes. Anyone who's a friend of Catherine's is a friend of mine. Um, I don't know if Catherine knows she and I are friends, but we are. Don't worry. I'll, okay. I'll take you. And I'll tell her, I'll brag later about how much better friends you and I are now. Oh than my God. That is a good friend, Lace. That's that friend. is... I know. But um, <laughs> I want to just ask about Cheaties. Cheaties is this podcast about people cheating. I kind of know the backstory, but tell us how uh, you came up with this. Well, I had, so my former relationship, I'm married now, I've been happily married uh, and with my, my spouse for 10 years and married for four. And the last long-term relationship I had before him, and please forgive my voice. I've, my allergies are so bad. Oh, um, uh, thank you. I'm waiting for my Zyrtec to kick in, but um so my last long-term relationship before my husband, it was a classic toxic early twenties through the end of my twenties relationship. I was, you know, he was gaslighting me before we knew the term, uh, you know, all that stuff, uh, cheating. I didn't, I couldn't prove it until the end, but I finally did. I caught him. And then I wrote and <laughs> A little into it took me it took me a few years into stand up to finally talk about how I caught my ex and once I wrote a bit about it it became one of my favorite bits and I've used it as the closing bit multiple times I actually just recorded my very first album and it's the closing bit on my album because I wanted to take all my favorite jokes from my career thus far and put them on there so it was pretty popular right I've done this joke a bunch people have seen it they know it it's kind of long it's interactive at the uh, and then fast forward to it would now be like five years ago or th- sorry two years ago at the inception of the podcast Catherine had been dating someone for three years when she was catching him cheating she was doing the exact same thing that I do in my bit where I squat down and I'm going through their phone and they're asleep and you're going through theirs and yeah she catches him and the first thing she thought before confronting him was I'm doing Lace's bit I should call her oh <laughs> And then she's like, no, what am I talking about? I need to handle this. And then of course, uh, you know, she tells me a couple days later where, uh, you know, I'm there for her on the phone when she's going through the breakup. And I said, if we've gone through this in the exact way, there have, <laughs> there have to be thousands or if not millions of other people who have been through this story and how can we help other people prevent it, right? Because you're not going to listen to your friends. You're not going to listen to your parents when you're in one of those relationships. So who can help you? Maybe these two strangers who can make light of a bad situation, you know, and maybe hopefully along the way, teach people how to look for red flags and get out of these relationships sooner. Because again, it's, it's a painful, painful place to be when you find Mm -hmm. out infidelity is again, so common I'm like, then just no break up. But it, 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 I'm not saying I've been perfect person, but I mean, like, uh, 
it's so painful when it's a long term. And where does the humor come from? How long did it take for you to go? Hey, because I know what it's like. I do some stand up and I'm like, oh, my God, material out of the most painful breakup. Yeah, seriously. I it took me a while as does with everything. And I guess that's why I probably when I started stand up, I was, I was okay with talking about things from like my childhood first, <laughs> and then just kind of like move along from there and kind of mix in, you know, observations of the world around me. Those are easy. Those were easier at the beginning, uh, than delving into the pain I had just gone through. And, and it, once, once a few years had passed and I was in a healthy, happy relationship and I was doing standup and I felt more confident in myself, I also began feeling more confident in my story. And, and say, oh my God, I went through the same thing, went through the same thing. Then you feel like, okay, well, this isn't just my story to hold to myself anymore. It's now my responsibility to share this story on stage and maybe, you know, help out some other people as well. I love that because there's nothing like connecting. I'm not comparing myself to you. You guys are awesome. But I mean, when oh you connect, God. when you connect with that audience, when they're like, oh my God, I did that. Or I feel that way. And, yeah. um, it, and the laughter that it's just so like powerful. Um, what, 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 what is it like for you when you're killing on stage? Cause I know you kill all the time. Oh God. Well, thank you. I mean, I appreciate that. I, it's hard, man. Taking compliments is hard, especially as a stand-up comedian. <laughs> I always say I'm superstitious, so I go, "Well, I'm consistent. I'm very fortunate." <laughs> yes, Bless. and honestly, and that's literally a, with with a different set of words. I was going to say the exact same thing, which is, "Well, you know, I I have to accept compliments because I've worked very hard and I am uh-huh. very professional at what I do." And have I bombed before? Of course, we all have. We've all uh-huh. had a hell gig or two or a terrible open mic you know, um, (laughs) but, but for the most part, yeah, I'm a professional. I know my jokes. I like my jokes. I love performing. And it feels like, like in the killing moment, there's nothing like it. There is no higher high you can't. And I've never done hard drugs, but I assume it's got to feel like that. (laughs) Let's just say like I, and I, I'm like a roller coaster lover too. So I feel like it kind of gives you that that absolute joy you feel on the, on the downward side of a roller coaster. Mm-hmm. That's what it feels like on stage. It's kind of weightless and exciting and you just eat it up and your ego just loves it. <laughs> it, it the ego is happy. Sober now, sober now, but for two weeks of my drug addiction, it, it, it did mm. feel good for two weeks and then a few years, but um, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, <laughs> How did you get started in stand-up? What what was the moment when you're like, you know what, I'm I'm gonna do this for, for yeah. real? Yeah, I had a little fr- it froze a little bit on me, so I hope hopefully you can. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I was just asking what um what, when was the moment or the where you like I'm gonna do this for real? I'm gonna do comedy for real. Oh, I did, dead seriously, the very first night I did stand-up, that I was not a stranger to performing. I had I had been. Uh, loose loose quotes actor for most of my life you know trying to do theater and uh did some a uh, couple commercials when I was a kid like I my parents were exploring that with me because I just was a ham and I wanted to perform all the time so got into a few things here and there I always thought that was it I was like it's, it's acting acting is that seemed more tangible than anything else but I loved loved stand-up comedy just consumed it every chance I got. I remember when Comedy Central came out like in the 90s and I was just 
I was like, this is what I've been waiting on a whole channel just for comedy. And I don't have to just wait for SNL. You know, uh, it was, it, 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 I knew I always loved it, but I didn't know how to get to it. And then when I did, I did pageants, um, as a teen and early twenties. And when it came time to like do a talent, I always did comedic monologues. I would pick comedic pieces. And I, so I knew I loved making people laugh and, and it just all kind of happened when it, when it happened, it was serendipitous, like the way, the way I actually was able to get on stage for the first time. And once that night happened, I had those laughs and it combined everything I had loved, right. It combined like carrying myself well on stage, which I had learned and perfected in pageants. And it took the, the performative part of it, which I loved from, you know, acting and cheerleading. And then I was actually being able to use my life and get laughs. Oh, right. That, that night, that first eight minutes I'd ever done that changed the rest of my life. I was like, well, I got to do this constantly. I have to, where is, how, how do we do this? Where, where are the open mics? Where is this? Like, how do I, how do I never stop doing this? And, and I didn't. We, we were talking about the, the ego thing, but, but it's, it is hard work for yeah. to write these jokes, to work on it, to get up on stage. Pe- people will come up to me after the show and they're like, you're so brave. And I'm like, mm, I, I, yeah, my legs would shake. Uh, my knees would shake, Lace. When right. I, I only started feeling really confident like a few weeks ago after five years. <laughs> and, and again, consistently. Okay. Um, yeah. How did you, but you did pageants and stuff. So were you ever uh, nervous or afraid on stage? I still, well, it, it's hard to say that I, uh, see, now I just feel like this interview is turning into just me patting myself on the back, which is definitely, not. definitely not. I'm just at a point now where, you know, it's hard to remember feeling crazy nervous, but I still trust me. I'm I'm flying to New York this weekend um, to perform at Caroline's on Broadway, and uh, I've got I'm a finalist in this Kenan Thompson uh, Ultimate Comedy Experience is what it's called. So they did showcases all over the country. I was a semifinalist in mine, and then got votes and all these secret judges. And I don't know. Anyway, I don't know how it happened. It's all crazy. And I'm going to go up to S to, uh, and I get to go to SNL. I get to go see a taping of SNL on Saturday. Nice. So I'm dying. Um, but yeah, I still get when the, when the stakes are higher, I get, I get nervous. Like, but it, it doesn't matter what I'm doing. I still, once I get that first laugh on say, I could be as nervous. I could be shaking on the inside and then, and sweating or whatever, you know, all the nerves. And then as soon as I grab that mic and I get that first laugh, it disappears. Same. Same. It disappears. As soon as, as, soon as I, I feel safe. And um, because again, I, you know, I love doing stand up. I never thought I'd get the chance. And Comedy Key West down here has just been a community of support. They, they just, they're so good to me with stage time. But I mean, it is work. It is work. And, and it, it does take a lot because, um, and most people are very appreciative. But I wanted to ask about, there's always someone in the audience who's like, I'm funny at work. <laughs> oh, why does not only audience, if anybody finds out you do stand up, yes. everybody has to say, well, I just, Catherine and I just had this conversation with a comedian we were interviewing on our podcast the other day who had an absolutely incredible cheating story, by the way, the, the episode just came out yesterday, but, um, 
it has it pays off in all the ways we've been waiting for for 200 episodes <laughs> uh, it's a great story but anyway we talked about like the five same things that everyone says to you when they find out you do stand up or they see you do stand up and it's just so annoying and it's so frustrating because they but it you i take that back it used to be frustrating it used to be annoying until I realized that those people are either never going to get on stage or once they do get on stage, they're going to have to face the harsh reality that it's not, it's not as easy as it seems. It it looks easy. Like so many things in life. I had the most uncomfortable haircut. I went to a different, I cheated on my hairstylist. We can talk about that. And (laughs) I mentioned, I go, I'm having a show. So I really need to look good. And, um, and he treated me to some of the most offensive non-funny jokes i've ever heard um, you, you froze i missed that oh, you i'm said sorry you cheated I, on your hairdresser and then what i cheated on my hairdresser so i'm already feeling and i said i have a it was a last minute hair emergency and i was like i i'm, I'm doing a comedy tonight and he treated me to 20 minutes of the most unfunny offensive jokes and oh, i didn't laugh i just froze because he had my hair in his hands yeah so it's yeah like surgery um, <laughs> but why? if not if not more important if yeah. not and so many people at open mic will go i'm gonna do this and and they find out this is not easy and it i yep. it took me a while to get that experience it's like working out yeah yeah it is and that's what that's I, I mean i run a comedy class uh it started as an all-women class i still teach all women uh, classes in addition to co-ed classes but yeah I started my own little thing because I wanted to help women get into comedy and stay into comedy if they were interested in it um because as you know it's just not it's not easy and it's not easy for it's definitely uh less easy for women but um I wanted to do that but I also wanted to give them the skills to look professional every time they got on stage you know I don't remember what I, I brought that up for a reason. And now I completely forgot. What was the thing you said right before hairdresser? Yeah. Jokes. Um, oh my God. I brought up the whole class thing for a reason. There was something about the offensive jokes and now I can't remember. Oh, Oh, is it it to maybe not, um, do that? Well, yeah, I mean that, but also, oh shoot. I don't even remember now. I'll, I'll, it'll come back to me later, but I had, I had a point. I swear to God, I had a point to that. Um, bring that up. Because I anyway. wanted to ask you about, you have a t-shirt I saw on your website. You have a t-shirt that says more women headliners. More yes, female more, headliners. more female headliners. Well, I bought that from, there is a comedian in, uh, I think she is in, Col- yes, Columbus, Ohio. And she has a company called Babe, Babe Roar, like the lion, like Roar. And she prints those shirts and she has tons of merchandise that say that And she's a comedian and she's a booker and she focuses on all female and LGBTQ um, showcases. So I, she found me online. I saw her merch. I, I was like, I gotta have this shirt. And uh, yeah, I love it. I love that because I gotta, I'm, this is just my experience um, because I'm in Key West. It's a very, mm-hmm. I can never live anywhere else because everyone's nice here all the time. Sure. But, it's Key West. I, Why would you I, be? When what what travel, do you have to be mean about? <laughs> that, yeah, but when I travel and someone's rude in the checkout line to me, like another customer, I'm always like torn. And my friends like, this is what real life is like. <laughs> so I've always been supported by the comedians, by the community. But 
being a woman in comedy, I, I understand this is a male dominated industry. Mm-hmm. Um, I still get nervous when I get on stage. I, you know, I, I'm a queer woman, I'm a gay woman, and I get nervous about how I look. I'm like, am I pretty enough? What, what's <laughs> going on there with, with, I, does any guy get on stage and say, I, I hope no, I'm pretty? no, they don't. No, no, we, I can attest to that. Every male I've ever seen do a show, they, 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 stumble into the venue and clothes that may or may not have been washed in the last couple of weeks and it's just like they're just like clothes they don't think oh it's this type of show and i'm not speaking for all male comedians because some of them are good and some are put together and they they care about what they look like but uh yeah so many men are just like yeah pants shirt shoe maybe they don't even care and they just put it on and they do a show and we have to think we're we're facing so many obstacles before we even hit the stage right and guys are just focused guys get the they get the ability to just focus on well let's let's narrow down to straight guys get the ability to just focus on their jokes right everyone else has to think okay like you said and am I pretty enough for this? Did I do my hair right? Are my shoes appropriate for this venue or this, you know, this crowd? What is this crowd going to think of me once they see me? Because crowds make judgments of you before you ever open your mouth. And unfortunately, I've seen so many male comedians be given the benefit of the doubt. They, they People just automatically assume they're funny because they're a man. And so they're just sitting there ready to go. And we have to overcome the obstacle of people automatically thinking, oh, no, what's this going to be? I, I, I agree. I relate. And I also, um, and someone, um, I'm, I'm, I'm sober. I'm in recovery. And someone who used to do stand up in recovery, she warned me, uh, I wanted to bring this up to you. Cause she said, be careful with the self-deprecating stuff. The mm-hmm. whole, I can't get a date or I, cause I, I, I like to make fun of the, I like to make fun of the, I'm sure y'all thought I was straight and people laugh and they, I sure. like it. It's comp- it makes me connect. Cause I'm the other, there's not a lot of sure. people in the audience. I ask. Right. <laughs> she said, be very careful about, and I'm like, but it's funny. And, and I, how do you feel about the self-deprecating the women? Do women tend to do it more? I see a lot of guys making fun of themselves. I, I love it. And I always uh, support it. I, I do a little self-deprecation myself. I'm always a big fan. If done, sorry, my dog is destroying. I just hear plastic crunching. Oh, it's an old no. flower pot. Okay, good, good. Um, she can have that. So um, I'm always a big fan of it if done artfully, right? So that's definitely something we focus on in the class as well is to, like I said, professionalism. And, and I feel the same way about, you know, cursing on stage or, you know, you do, go, doing blue humor. Because if you do it right, then it could be, it could be, it, it, it's it's magical right on stage the, the proper and i don't know if you're recording this or using this for what or if you're you're gonna are you gonna type something from this or are you using this whole recording oh it's for the podcast oh it's for the podcast okay great so i probably should have um, told you that at the beginning no that's okay <laughs> and are you um is, is there any language con- oh no, bar- no go ahead. oh, go ahead. oh good okay this whole time oh. i've been like been like oh i need to be proper because she might write, write an article or something i don't know no, no, okay no, you're but good. A, a proper motherfucker right mm-hmm. sounds really great in a joke and can be impactful it could be a perfect punchline it could be unexpected like what you're saying like self-deprecating I had this one student years ago who continued to do comedy for a while and she started my class in her late 50s um if not early 60s at the time and and 
everyone expected something from right everyone sees her and they're like oh she's probably a grandmother she's this she's that and she had one joke where she talks about this whole battle she has with a cockroach in her house (laughs) i love it and it's like she's like going up the stairs or down the stairs it comes at her and everyone knows what it's like when you encounter a cockroach especially a flying one and well you're in florida you know (laughs) yeah (laughs) but um but yeah, she, uh, but she, she does this whole thing and then she, and she spills her wine and it's this, and no one sees this coming, but at one point she, she just says, and then I killed that motherfucker <laughs> and no one saw it coming. No one expected it from her. And it was that, I mean, she might as well have gotten a standing ovation and a, a five minute applause break. Like it was, it was so perfect. So I, that's my same philosophy with self-deprecation is if you're going to do it, it needs, it doesn't need to be your whole identity. Right. Okay. That's, that gets tiresome. It's like, just like cussing. Like if you're just like, fuck this, fuck this, fuck this, this fucker, this fucker, this fucker. If you're doing that too much, that's annoying. It gets I learned boring. that the heart. I mean, I, I, I curse so, so much. I think you, now. yeah. And it's like, I love it's it. Funnier. It's properly funnier. placed. It's funnier, right? It gets, you lose, it loses its energy when you do it too much. And I feel the same way about self-deprecation. Like if you do it in the right way, or especially if you use misdirects in the right way and they're kind of self-deprecating, like what you were saying, like, oh, I bet you thought, you know, and you play around with people's stereotypes of you and then you bust those stereotypes with misdirection. I think that's, I mean, that's just, that's beautiful. That's just, that's a part of the art form. It really is. I know I've kept you too long. I just love talking to you. But last question, <laughs> writing comedy, um, how do you approach it? Is it like, uh, I learned the hard way. Oh my God, if I don't write it down right away, yeah. it's gone. Oh, you'll forget it. Oh, and, that, and I feel like that's the same no matter how long or, or how new you are to stand up or how, how long you've been doing it. That still reigns true. You have to write it down. Now, I don't have a writing process. I, especially now at this point, in stand-up and I, I do show so regularly that I okay thought she was choking on the plastic dear god now I'm worried about the dog no the dog's no, fine she's fine she's an you're idiot good. You're good. we covered that we, we covered this before <laughs> we started right. recording she's a moron um so she'll be all right but uh uh I don't really have like a writing process like I used to it's more of I can trust myself to have an idea and then work you know, maybe it's, maybe it starts with the seed of either the punchline or the setup Mm -hmm. and, or I'll be telling a story and somebody goes, write that down. Is that why do why don't you talk about that? I'm like, oh yeah, that's probably, there's probably something there. It's probably got legs. And I, and if I don't put it in a note and write it, I will never remember it again. Um, and I might not write through the entire thing when I, when I write it down, but if I at least write down that punchline or that setup, I can come back to it later when I'm prepping for a show and I know I want to do a new bit or it's a good show to try out a new bit. Then I'll, I'll look at that, come up with some, you know, either just, you know, fill in the blanks, whatever's missing out of that joke and then work that out on stage as opposed to doing my pages and sitting down and writing it all out and writing options and tagging it and using the economy of words and all the things that I make my students do. <laughs> the editing is so important. I yeah, I, I edit on that. stage. You, yeah, 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 there you go. Me too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that, you know, you can now, but I new to comedy, if anyone is new to comedy and they're trying to get comedy advice, that's terrible comedy advice for a new comic. Don't it do is. that. Write it out. Write it out. Preparation, preparation, preparation is the most important thing you can do on stage. And I, to go back to your hairdresser, 
I think that that's, and I think that's why I brought up my class because so many people have that like, oh, I'm funny at work feeling, right? And they think they, they think you can just riff it and they, they, they don't put any effort into actually, and that's what classes do for you or just a mentor in standup helps you weed out terribly offensive jokes, terribly yes. boring jokes, jokes that are lacking setups and or punchlines. Um, and doing all that editing work prior helps you look better on stage as a comedian. Like it just, people trust you if you can make them laugh and they trust that once, especially if you're a woman, if you get over, once they get over that hurdle of, oh, she's probably not going to be funny. It's probably just going to be periods and tampons the whole time. Um, you know, once they get over that, once you, you knock them dead with a well-written joke over and over and over, now you've got the trust of the audience. So that's what's, that's, what's important. We got enough to deal with that. So you better get on stage prepared. I need a lot of help from my friends. I think I drive them nuts because we're all at lunch. I'm like, hey, is this a bit? And they're like, hi, can we talk about me? I'm like, no. <laughs> today. You knew what we were getting into. Um, you're coming <laughs> to Key West for Comedy Key West. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Are you freaking kidding me right now? I, I did not expect that. I, apparently there was a cancellation and I, I was going to do that club at some point and there was a cancellation. So it was kind of a last minute booking and I am so excited i've only been to key west once and it wasn't for comedy so i'm I'm thrilled to do comedy down there i've always been in love with that place i've always said that's my retirement goal you know if all goes well and or if all falls apart i'm i'm gonna be a bartender on key west for the rest of my life so i'm super excited to go back my mom is so excited because she's gonna fly down she was like oh that sounds like a perfect vacation for me and i was like this is supposed to be a vacation for me but all right fine (laughs) So mama's going to join me and, uh, yeah, I cannot wait to just be there and, and to just enjoy that, that constant happiness y'all have down there. <laughs> it's, it's pretty good. Once you pay the rent, then you, it's like childbirth. I think you forget the pain of you forget. <laughs> and it, it is a wonderful, uh, supportive place. And Lace Larrabee, I can't wait to meet you. And remember, tell Catherine the best I, friend spot is changing. I'm going to tell her I'm winning at this point. So Yeah. <laughs> And she's, if you know, if we're not competing, are we friends? So, you know, you're the best. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you. Continued success. Thanks. Pickpocket's Daughter opens this month at the studios of Key West. We are going to talk to the playwright, Neil Ruckman, and actor Cassidy Timms. Hi, thanks for joining me. Oh, thank you, Gwen. Thanks for having us. There's a lot going on in this play. Um, I'm just going to ask you to, we got gangsters and things are happening. (laughs) There's some shady people. Uh, Tell us all about it, Neil. Okay. Well, uh, it is the 1930s. Uh, the Irish and the Jews uh, each have gangs and have some political strength. The Irish dominating New York City through Tammany Hall. And that's when this play takes place. It's based on my mother's life. Uh, she kept secret the fact uh, that her grand- that my grandfather, her father, was a pickpocket and a bit of a thug. Uh, 
but he was the most wonderful man I probably ever met. He was great to me. And so it is truly a happy story of uh, redemption. And it has a lot of laughs and thrills. It does sound like I'm, I'm assuming it takes a lot of twists and turns. Yes. And we learn a lot about, um, I got to ask, when it comes to pickpocketing, I, I know it's illegal, everyone. It, it's kind of an art form. I mean, you have to know what you're doing, right? Yes. And uh, our actors have had to learn how to do it as well. And I do not have that skill that was not handed down to me genetically, nor was I trained, because it was a secret of my grandfather's activity, actually, until my mom uh, was in her late 60s. And then when she was in about to turn 90, she said, if I ever wrote my life story, I would call it Pickpocket's Daughter. She told me in her 60s, and I kept that secret for 30 years. Um, and then I got her permission because she wanted a legacy. So here it is. That's that's great. Cassidy, what's yes. it like to play Matsy? What's it like to uh, tell us about Matsy? Matsy Moses, she is a spitfire, firecracker, um, go-getter. She is fearless. Um, she is she she's she's a handful as I think is called in the play at, at times rough around the edges but very smart very 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 smart um, and has a huge heart and love for Jack um, her 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 dad um, and when she discovers the the truth about him it's absolutely heartbreaking and finding the mix for Matsi of fearlessness and grit and and go-getter attitude mixed with the heartbreak and betrayal that she's feeling at just 17 while navigating these very intense situations that she is just now learning about. It is a challenge. It is an extremely fun challenge. I have loved getting to know Matsi so far. Um, she feels very close to my heart in the way that she approaches things. Um, and yeah, it's it's been a it's been a joy to bring her to life. Now, Neil, and um, Cassidy's doing a fabulous job. I'm sorry. No, 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 you're good. You're good. You're good. Uh, so, um, Neil, uh, tell us about your connection to the studios of Key West. How did this all come about oh. um, for for this production? Gosh, great question. I've got to think about how far back it goes. Um, <laughs> yes. Okay. I know the perfect place to start, Gwen. Thank you. Uh, the uh, studios, you know, I was amazed at what they did as a bystander when they took a big gulp and decided to open on Eaton Street, having, you know, a fairly reasonable facility uh, over at the armory. And uh, once they got it done, I went, oh, my God, these guys are like magicians. You know, they're, they're like super powered people. And then... Uh, I signed up for a writing course with Bob Bowersox. And through that screenplay, uh, this uh, was then turned into a stage play uh, with the help of Murphy Davis, who is now directing it. So the studios really was uh, a birthing ground and a very nurturing place. And that is part of their mission to help develop new works. Um, and so I really, really have a big debt to them. And uh, there was no, and they have a wonderful theater and uh, 
wonderful people in Aaron and Elena and Jed and Michelle. Uh, you know, you know some of them I know. I mean, it's just a terrific environment. Yeah, just a terrific environment. And uh, now we're talking about uh, Matsy being the the heroine of of the story of the of the play. Uh, can you talk about some of the other characters? Introduce them a little bit. I mean, who else are we? Uh, who else are we going to meet? Cassidy, you want to take one, and then I'll take one. Sure. So you will meet. Um, let's talk about Florence. I'll talk about Florence. So Florence is uh, Matsy's mother. Florence and Matsy, uh, they have quite a difficult relationship. They don't see eye to eye majority of Matsy's life. Um, they Florence is angry over a lot of things about Matsy and, and identifies her as more of a burden to her life than a joy. Um, however, Florence does have some character growth, which you'll have to see in the show. Um, but uh, the, the actress playing Florence is extremely talented, brings this growth to life. And um, yeah, that's, that's Florence. She's, she is a character for sure. And I'll add something on Florence, uh, mm -hmm. which Cassie is terrific. Um, she is played by Jessica Miano Cruel, and both Cassidy and Jessica from day one just arrived knowing their characters, having made good choices. And, you know, it's just been amazing. Um, I guess I'll take Gal. Uh, Gal Kincannon, uh, his name comes from works in two ways. In Yiddish, uh, Gollum is a word for devil. And um, I'll give a longer explanation, but that's a good shorthand. And of course, Goliath, he is huge. He's a big guy. He's the son of a guy who used to be a crook named King Kincannon, who has now turned legitimate. I mean, if you think about, say, Joseph Kennedy, who was reportedly a bootlegger, but then became an ambassador to England, he's that kind of guy. But his son uh, is just a terrible person, um, violent, corrupt, and is trying to wage a vendetta against Jack, the Jewish gang leader uh, and occasional pickpocket. Right, Matsy? Would you say that's correct? Absolutely right. <laughs> I, I love theater because it's it's art just happening right in front of us. I mean, it's right there. It it's palpable. It it's. Can you talk? Uh, each of you kind of talk a little bit about um, what it's like to produce that, or what it's like to. I mean, how does it happen? How do you make it come alive? Yeah, theater is m my favorite thing in the entire world. Um, I've done it my entire life. Um, and been lucky enough to do a handful of productions and a handful of new works. I love bringing new work to life um, because you really have to dive deep into the psyche of these people without judging them. You can't judge the person that you're playing. You have to live authentically as they would and make choices as they would. Um, when I describe acting to people that have never seen live theater, I say, you know, you go to an art show and you look at the gallery but theater, live theater is more like watching the artist make the sculpture, watching the artist paint the picture. Um, and we are doing that with ourselves and bringing these people from words on a page to living, breathing, truthful beings reacting in the moment um, to what is happening. And it's, it's absolutely magical. Theater is truthfully 
my favorite thing on the planet and and one of my happiest um, and most brings the most joy to my life. And Neil, what 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 is it like um, to be the playwright, to be kind of the instigator, if you will, of all this? Uh, it's it is the most joyful experience one can imagine, at least for me. Uh, having people like Don Bearden, David Black, Cody Bora, Mary Falconer, Joy Hawkins, who's you know an icon in this town, Jessica, who I mentioned. Uh, Mark Liebert from out of town, Cassidy, who comes to us from out of town, uh, a little guy, 11 years old, who pays a pickpocket assistant, who has a resume as long as some of the adult actors in the play. Uh, and uh, he comes to us from Boston area. Uh, Philip Cole White, who came in from LA and it, it has just hit it out of the park in several Key West productions. He just finished a production in Texas. And uh, Jeremy Zoma, who's been, who also came from out of town, uh, but has been in Key West, like Jessica has for several productions and is well known. And when you have a dozen people like that, taking what you wrote, interpreting it, improving it, and I really do mean improving it, just, you know, uh, last night, uh, I thought Cassidy was saying something wrong, but she caught a typo in the script. So, you know, okay. uh, yeah, it's, it's really, um, and I think I did catch one thing that uh, you did differently than the script. So, and, you know, uh, just yesterday, David Black, you know, who's a legend in this town, uh, said, you know, I'm a little worried about this. And it wasn't really a writing thing. It was just something he wanted to communicate to the audience very early in a scene. And so, boom, we do it. And, you know, Blake Hunter was involved in the very beginning in coaching me in writing. He is the creator uh, and executive producer and writer of uh, Who's the Boss with Tony Danza okay. and Judith Light. Okay. And uh, yeah, I mean, where else in Key West do you get people like that? And I had a, a point in this process where I was working on both the screenplay and the stage play. And my beloved partner, Melissa Jean McDaniel, said, Neil, pick one. Pick one. Just pick one. It doesn't matter which. And I remembered when she said that Blake's words with a play, you're going to be involved with every little word, working with actors. You're going to nurture it, you know? And there is this saying about Hollywood. Uh, Edward Albee said, when you, you rent your play, okay, but you sell your script to Hollywood, and frequently you sell it along with your soul. And Bob has sold a play to Hollywood and uh, a screenplay, pardon me. And, you know, he's just seen, you lose control of the script. You have no change. You know, they make the changes. You know, I mean, it is. And he sat there and watched his play become unrecognizable. You know, uh, so... Uh, now, in the pickpockets, daughter, we've got gangsters, shady politicians, policemen on the take. Um, I love true crime. I love crime stories. Neil, how did you how did you put the characters together? I mean, are you looking for straight up realism? Or are you just kind of like saying, you know, are they realistic or are they kind of like just, you know? Well, 
I had a great gift. I had a great gift. Uh, and that was the truth. Okay. Um, my mother was one of the funniest outspoken people I ever met. Okay. And once she told me her background, which I didn't know till I was in my forties. Uh, and again, I kept secret all those years. Um, so there you go. There's Matsi. I mean, boom, uh, done. And then Jack was a wonderful grandfather. So, I mean, I knew him and then I got his backstory and I understood him a little better. Um, I obviously knew my grandmother, but the other uh, characters, uh, Ted O'Brien, Jack's loyal friend, who, despite his Irish brogue, is learning Yiddish, okay, because, and he speaks Yiddish during the play. Um, Jack had policemen like that on his payroll. In order to be a pickpocket in the subway, you had to pay off the subway police. So I received a lot of truth. And as Tennessee Williams said, one of my heroes, uh, I tell the truth, but I tell it in an entertaining manner. And that's what I've tried to do. What's it like to, I love um, art about flawed characters because obviously that's all of us. Yeah, you got it, you got it. <laughs> Whether we want to admit it or not. And when you're writing something, um, and I love stories where I find myself rooting for someone who maybe is breaking the law. Uh, how, yeah, do we, how do you make the characters likable? How, that must be an, a strategy, right? To, Gosh, I've spoken so much in the last couple of minutes. I'm just wondering if Cassidy would like to take oh, a sure, shot yeah. at that, or I will. I I will. Mean, it, it, yeah, as far as the actor standpoint goes, um, it's kind of not our job to necessarily make the audience like who I am. The actor's job is to be truthful to that character um, and to, to really feel what they feel and to truthfully um, convey those emotions while while not judging um so i the focus at least for the actor is not to be well liked by the audience however for the playwright it is different um i would imagine in the way that he wrote it and they and i mean it, it they we are well liked i think <laughs> yes i think every character has his fans in fact i thought about buying the cast ball caps that said i like Matsi, i like gal but i didn't know if you guys would really anyway but um if you'd really were uh but i uh look back and I don't think anyone is all good and anyone is all bad and I didn't have any character in here who um maybe with the exception of the rabbi who's a character in the play oh, yeah. uh yeah he's pretty much all good I think I don't think he ever does anything wrong um except speak Yiddish in a courtroom where nobody <laughs> understands Yiddish but you know other than that he's he's pretty superb um you know, in my life, I, I, I just haven't seen anyone who's all good and all bad, like you said, Gwen. Um, and Jack certainly was that guy to me. He was the grandfather, the only one I had, but of all my adult relatives, he was the one who was the most fun. You know, go into a store and just say, give the kid the best, whatever, you, you know, whatever it was, you know, if it was candy or if it was a tape recorder, whatever it was, you know. Very generous. And, you know, if anyone epitomized that about a, a human kind, it was him, you know, so. 
And you know, okay, I have when I like when I go to theater and I like something, it has characters who are interesting. It makes me laugh. It makes me cry, and I learn something. And that's what I try to do here. Well, thank you both for joining me. Neil Ruckman is the playwright behind The Pickpocket's Daughter, starring Cassidy Timms. Thanks for listening to We're Not Finished, a podcast presented by the studios of Key West. The studios is a leading art institution in South Florida. It's located downtown at 533 Eaton Street. For a list of events and more programming like this, go to tskw.org.